0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
1: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. For this episode, we take a short walk down the street to visit a close neighbor of economics within the social science world, psychology. My guest was Maria Konnikova. She's a terrific writer about psychology and human behavior, more generally for The New Yorker, and she also has a recent book out about the psychology of con artistry, the psychological processes happening beneath the surface before, during, and after a con within both the con artist and the person getting conned, just as important. We do talk at some length about the book, but first we talk about some of Maria's other favorite topics, we do a speed round about some of her specific articles, and we discuss her approach to writing. She was a great guest, and this was a really fascinating chat. I hope you like listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Here it is. So first of all, Maria, uh, thanks for coming to talk to us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay. Here's where I want to start. I want to ask you about methodological issues, um, which is something I like to talk about with a lot of our guests who are either social science researchers or people who write about social Mm -hmm. science. You happen to be a bit of both, right? You have a PhD in psychology. I would imagine that this gives you a real edge when you look at psychology papers because you can be a little bit more scrutinizing. For psychology, as with as with economics, you have to know a little bit about statistical techniques. You also have to know about study design. We know that a lot of findings in psychology uh, turn out not to be robust to subsequent evidence. So I guess my first question is, when you look at a piece of psychology research, what are you looking for to see if it's legit and something Mm -hmm. you can confidently write about? Or if it's something you should probably more safely ignore for now?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, And there are definitely ways that I can weed papers out right away. Um, Now, there are no flags that say, this is definitely going to be good. I have to read it. And sometimes after investing half an hour, you realize you also have to throw it out. Um, But some of those red flags at the beginning, um, and these are, I think, things that people can pick up pretty easily. Um, Study size, obviously. So if I see a paper and there are 20 people in it, and the thesis is something huge about social psychology, Um, I'm probably not going to read the rest of it because that is such a tiny, tiny sample size, and we're not looking at, you know, some cancer trial. It's very, very different. You need large numbers in social psych. Um, Is it a randomized trial? What are the control groups? You know, what is the actual study design? Because oftentimes you'll have people making claims and you'll realize that you can't make that claim unless you had very specific controls. So for instance, you know, is... Cognitive behavioral therapy effective. Let's just get a random question and I haven't written about this. So, so this is something that I have no skin in the game. Um, And you see that they have, you know, 100 people went in for cognitive behavioral therapy, and 100 people did nothing. Well, that's not a very effective study design because we know from a lot of previous research that simply doing something and simply talking to someone is incredibly effective. So there's no actual control group for this because doing nothing is not the control group you would want. You would want to test it against different types of therapies. You'd want to test it against just having coffee with someone for half an hour who has no therapeutic background. So you'd need to, you'd need to have the right controls for whatever it is you're trying to prove. Um, And then you do have to look eventually at the statistics, at their methods. And I'm not strong in statistics. I basically, you know, I got away with when I was doing my PhD, just learning what I needed to learn to analyze my own data and to figure out how to kind of design those studies. Um, I was not one of those people who's very data heavy. Um, So I can look at it and see you know, what's the effect size, basically? Is it tiny? Um, Is it pretty big? You know, what did you control for? There are certain things that you can look for. What were the tests that you used? Why did you use them? And I think the most important thing is, what did you find? And I mean, how crazy is it versus not? And the crazier the finding, the heavier, I think, the burden of proof
0: Yeah, you write in your articles sometimes about research uh, that might not be able to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. You've written about how a lot of people think that we can glean something about people's relationships based on their social media activity. You were a little bit skeptical in that piece about whether or not that's going to hold up.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that you have to do that. I try to be very careful never to write about a single study. And so this particular piece that you're referring to, there was one big study. Big data is such a hot term right now. As soon as you hear big data, people think, you know, oh, this must be right because you're relying on so much data. No. I mean, you have to be even more careful in some sense because the more data there is, the more things you might you might find and the more of it might be spurious. Um, and so you really need to be careful. And so what I always try to do is put it into context to see theoretically what are the bases for the, for these claims. And I always go back in time. So this is a little bit energy inefficient, but I think it's incredibly useful when you look at all of the references in the paper and basically what I look at is what are the oldest references. I actually read those papers, see what they reference, try to trace the intellectual history and figure out, you know, what's, where are we? You know, what's the context for this? And why are we making these claims? And that's why sometimes you th- you think, well, this might not stand up because people have thought this in the past, and we've actually had something quite similar. The data were different because we didn't have Twitter, um, but the-, the premise was the same.
0: Yeah. The other piece of yours that I really liked that followed a similar logic um, was about whether or not people were more moral in the morning <laughs> versus at night. Uh, you found that actually... It doesn't really matter if it's morning or night. What matters is whether or not the person is himself or herself, a morning person yes. or a
1: night person. Yep. Yeah, so it's a fit with our chronotype, and people people forget this all the Wait, time. What's a chronotype? <laughs> so that's why are you a night owl or a lark? Right. So basically, what what does your genetic internal clock say? So every single person is born with a certain genotype, which kind of predisposes you to be a morning person or a night person, and there are people who are kind of in between. Um, but mostly, you do have a chronotype that will change as you age, but that will govern when you're at your best. Um, And we live in a society that's really a lark society. It's Mm -hmm. built by larks. And there's a lot of moralism in that. You know, there's so much judgment. Um, I think in the piece I quote Ben Franklin, you know, early to bed, early to rise. (laughs) And there's so many of those maxims. You know, the early bird catches the worm. And what time do you have to get into the office every day? Right. so, So it's really, and if you have kids, what time do they go to school? It's really a society that's structured so that the only people who are matching their chronotype to the structure of the day are the larks. Mm -hmm. And so then you see it's very easy to come to a false conclusion um, and to say that, oh, larks are better, you know, and they're more moral because they don't cheat as often, et cetera, et cetera. But when you actually look at it, you realize that you were missing half the variables. You were missing this fit, which is incredibly important. So if you make a lark take a test at night, they're going to cheat much more than the owl it's just that we normally don't take tests at night. And I think this is so important when you're doing any sort of data analysis or when you're thinking about anything. We always, I mean, we don't look at the missing information. We tend to just look at kind of what's in front of us. But even, you know, for journalists, for everyone, you have to try to figure out what are people not saying? What are they not looking at? What are the potentially missing variables? Because that could be the story. And if you're not even going there, you're going to miss the story.
0: And precisely because society seems to conform to their preferences more... Larks can be sort of unbearably smug about stuff like this. (laughs) Uh, And I say that speaking as very much an owl. I'm
1: an owl um, as well, yes. uh,
0: Although I should tell our listeners we're taping this at about 11 in the morning, so I'm like past my jerk (laughs) phase, right? It's late enough in the morning that everything's fine now. Uh, I guess I I ask this because uh, people love to read about quirky findings, and the simpler the better, the more usable the better. And because of that, because there's a demand for it, journalists like to write about it, and this seems like it's become increasingly a problem because with the way media is now, things can proliferate so much faster. Yeah. Uh, and so you see what looks like an incredible finding, um, and there's a rush to write about it, and then it gets everywhere before uh, the appropriate amount of scrutiny can be applied. Absolutely. It's kind of frustrating.
1: It's really frustrating, and I think um, you know it gives a lot of science a bad name. Um, It gives a lot of journalists a bad name. And sometimes the problem isn't with the science, because the scientists sometimes don't make these strong claims. If you read the original papers, they caveat it. They say, you know, this is very preliminary. This is all we found. But most people don't take the time to read that. And then you have the press releases. And the press releases are saying, you know, butter cures cancer we know <laughs> we love butter and all of a sudden you get headlines that say butter cures cancer and sure it's a little bit lazy journalism too i'm not letting journalists off the hook because it's you know it's our job to disregard press releases yeah but um i think that sometimes especially if you're younger and more inexperienced and you need clips the pace of media has become much faster. Although sometimes I'll look at some of the uh, original yellow journalism papers from the 1800s and early <laughs> 1900s, and I think, oh, my God. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. It's people, <laughs> people who
0: despair for the state of journalism uh, don't know enough about journalism's origins, I think. Oh,
1: my God. If you look at the Hearst Publications, some of those headlines, it's you just you open your eyes and your mouth and just your heart drops and you think that was front page that was the front right. page <laughs> news.
0: <laughs> uh, there's another reason I asked about this, though. In a post you did at the end of last year on The New Yorker, mm-hmm. um, you listed the six most interesting psychology mm-hmm. papers uh, from 2015. Yep. One of those was a study by the Reproducibility Project, yep. which was this collaboration of researchers where they essentially tried to replicate the findings of, I forget how many papers, but it might've been in the thousands even, at least in the hundreds. The findings were either fine or terrible, depending on your interpretation. I think they managed to replicate somewhere between a third and a half uh, of the papers, which doesn't necessarily mean that the other half of the papers are wrong, but it did lead a lot of people to wonder if psychology has a bit of a problem. Um, uh, Specifically, and this is what you say in your post uh, with emphasizing novelty over uh, rigor, I guess. Uh, Can you just talk about how important that paper was and whether or not you think it'll bring about any changes?
1: Um, I think it's incredibly important to ask those sorts of questions because um, what ends up happening, I mean, psychology is about humans. You know, it's about how we think. And so a lot of people read psychology, and by people I know, I mean the general public, in a different way than they would read you know, an economics paper that they don't think actually applies to their life. And so then you have people making lifestyle changes, making, this is true of nutrition too. This is so actually what I'm saying about psychology is also true about a lot of medical stuff. Sure. So the stuff that you can apply personally. Um, and so what ends up happening a lot, and I think that this is happening everywhere in academia, it's just very evident in psychology, is that there's tremendous pressure to publish. So if you want a job in academia, if you want tenure, you need tons of publications. And so people try to just churn stuff out um, as much as they can. And so the rigor gets lost because it's quantity over quality. And it's basically the, the incentive structure is all wrong. And I think that papers like this, like Nozick's reproducibility project, are incredibly important because... If people pay attention to that, it might actually push the pendulum a little bit back to the center where we're looking more qualitatively. We're saying, okay, you know what, we don't care if you have 20 studies, um, if no one has cited them, if they haven't been reproduced, what actually matters is, you know, has this finding been reproduced? Have you reproduced it? You know, what is the evidence behind this? And it's also a problem with the journals. So journals like Psych Science, like PNAS, which is the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences, kind of science, even nature sometimes, they love these huge findings because they also want, they want the headlines. That's good for them. That's good for their citations. And right. so there are a lot of bad incentives here. And I think eliminating those incentives, ultimately, if you are a psychologist, you should be striving for the truth, right, about how humans work, not about a good finding. You actually want something that will explain human nature, and that's a it's a lofty goal. Uh- <laughs> yeah. What's interesting
0: about the findings of that paper too is that psychologists are the ones who've been studying cognitive biases yep. uh, increasingly for the last few decades. And it seems like they themselves are as vulnerable to cognitive uh, biases as anybody else.
1: Absolutely. Well, one of the things that Daniel Kahneman will tell you right away is that you know he spent his career looking at biases and heuristics. He won the Nobel Prize for it. He still has every single one of them. That's why they're so powerful. Knowing about them, you can try to correct for them, but ultimately, you will right. still you will still exhibit them. And I think you know if you're if this is your career, and I've written before um, about how difficult it is to get people to change their minds especially about things that are central to their self-perception and their self-image you know if this is what you've built your career on so if you're not to not to pick on anyone but just because he's one of the people who was in the early replication crisis john barge who did all of these studies at Yale on whether social priming works. And priming is this effect where if I prime you with an idea, um, then that idea will influence you later on without your knowledge. Subliminally, right. Exactly. So for instance, this is one of his most famous ones. It's called the Florida effect. If I give you a crossword puzzle, and a lot of those words are things like gray and Florida and old <laughs> and Alzheimer's, then you'll start walking more slowly. Um As you leave the experiment, this was a really big finding because people start feeling old. This was one this was kind of the tip of the replication crisis iceberg because when people tried to replicate that, they couldn't um they couldn't replicate a lot of the social priming findings. Does that mean social priming is wrong? No, but it does mean that we need to kind of try to figure out what's going on. Why isn't it replicating? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the effect is a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit more fragile, you know. It it teaches you more about it. But if you're John Barge, you're going to actually just dismiss all of these attempts as just terrible, terrible people being out for blood because this is who you are.
0: We're going to talk about your book later. uh, But there is this scene in the book where uh, in the pickpocket artist, Apollo Robbins essentially gave you a choice of choosing between three items. And he kept guessing in advance exactly which item you would choose. And it's because he had primed you. It seems to work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it worked perfectly. I mean, it was in the way that he asked the questions and the way that he actually, but he's brilliant. I mean, he's one of the best magicians in the world. And I was there, you know, and he was helping me with the book. And so I knew that he was doing something. And for the life of me, I just couldn't couldn't do it.
0: (laughs) That's actually a a good segue um, for my next question, which is partly about economics. Uh, This podcast is normally about economics uh, and business. Within economics, there's been increasing emphasis on the way people are affected by their circumstances. Mm -hmm. So the one sort of rock hard belief in economics is that incentives matter. But increasingly, it seems like a lot of economists are admitting that circumstances matter Mm -hmm. as well. A lot of the findings that come out of psychology and behavioral economics uh, are about sort of quotidian mundane things. Like if you have a bigger bowl of soup, you're going to end up eating more soup, that kind of thing. But actually, it seems to apply it in much bigger issues as well. Um, So the book Scarcity by Sindil Malanathan and Eldar Shafir talks about how not having enough of something affects people's mindset in a way that ends up being really self-defeating. And it could be a lack of money, a lack of time. Whatever it is that you need to essentially accomplish something, if there's a scarcity of it, uh, it kind of messes with you. Mm-hmm. This has been, I think, a pretty profound shift in economics is understanding the impact of circumstances yeah. on people's everyday lives. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering if you've detected a similar trend in psychology or if because it's psychology, it's just sort of always been there and now it's gaining more prominence.
1: Well, I think um, the answer is actually yes to both. So because it's because it's psychology, it has always been there to some extent, but Psychologists have actually gone back and forth on how much um, of a person's decisions, how much of a pers- person's you know, thinking and abilities is dependent on them versus the situation. Um, so, at the in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, there were things like the fundamental attribution error, where people said, "Okay, we often attribute things to the person." that we should actually be attributing to the situation. So if I snap at you and you've never met me before, you might say, oh, she is a not very nice person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you just say, "I, I don't like her. You know, she's nasty. Well, what if, you know, I just, you know, I was stuck in traffic for an hour and I lost my wallet and I was picked, you know, all this stuff happened before I came. And so I just snapped and it had nothing to do with you, but I'm just in a really terrible mental place right now fundamental attribution error. You are attributing to me what you should be attributing to my circumstances, and you read it as an aspect of myself. Now, what people have found since then is that actually the fundamental attribution error can go both ways. So in some societies, so if you go to Eastern culture, where a lot of those societies are much more outwardly focused, there's still the fundamental attribution error, but people are much more likely to over-attribute to circumstances rather than to the person. So you see me and I keep snapping at you over and over and you keep saying, oh, this must have happened, oh, that must have happened. Just having
0: a bad day or whatever.
1: Exactly, but the real answer might be I'm just a nasty person.
0: (laughs) You're just a jerk, right.
1: (laughs) And so so, um, the thinking has shifted a little bit. To realize that both things matter, and what you need to figure out, and this kind of goes to economics because you can do a probability weighting. Um, you can see, you can see, you know, what given the given the information I have and given what I know, what is likely to be weighed more, and what's likely to matter more, and am, am I in my thinking, am I over attributing to something else?
0: Okay. Before we get to uh, your new book, The Confidence Game, uh, we are going to do a speed round because you're a prolific writer, uh, but you also cover quite a wide range of topics. I'm just going to name a topic that you've written about, tell us the most important thing we should know about it, and then we'll keep going.
1: Is I forget a good answer?
0: (laughs) Uh, I forget is a good answer, after which I'll give you a minute to remember, and then we'll go right back into it. Okay. Ready? Here we go. This is going to be fun. Open plan offices.
1: Bad, bad, bad idea. (laughs) All of the evidence says it's bad for productivity. um, It's bad for happiness. You're going to have worse workers. Even people who think that they're better end up performing worse than they do otherwise. And, and this is something that employers should think about, um, originally open plan offices were used to save money. Um, Nobody likes to admit this now. It's all sorts of, oh, we want communication. Because really, it's a money-saving device Mm -hmm. because you don't have to build walls or offices, what ends up happening is you lose money because people get sick much more often because germs get spread in an open environment in a way that they don't. And people are also more stressed because of noise. Stress makes you more vulnerable to getting sick. More people miss work. And so you end up losing money. So that's an economic incentive argument that should basically make everyone say no more open offices because even the thing that we want to protect, our bottom line is being hurt by this.
0: Okay. So uh, I set you up a little bit on that one. <laughs> open plan office is one of my favorite topics, right? I think they're horrible and I've been waging a campaign against them for a little while now. But last year, I kind of went down the rabbit hole on this and I read your piece on it. Uh, but but something occurred to me more recently. Uh, we had Anders Ericsson in here. He's the psychologist who studied deliberate practice, right? Uh, and he made the point that the way you go from being either mediocre or even above average to being really great at what you do, is through deliberate practice, which is usually solitary, it requires deep focus, Mm -hmm. and it requires an awareness of what you're doing right and wrong as you go along. And in an open plan office, the environment seems almost perfectly geared towards stopping that altogether. And so when people use this uh, this justification that in an open plan office, you have these spontaneous meetings, that these ideas collide, my question now is, who cares if those ideas are coming from your mediocre staff because they were never able to go from being mediocre to
1: great? Yeah, no, I think that is such an important point. Um, it's It's a great insight because one of the things... That I've studied is creativity, and you know where does creativity come from, and where does deep thinking? My first book was about mindfulness. You know that long before mindfulness became a buzzword. <laughs> now I'm embarrassed to say my first book your, was your, about your
0: mindfulness. Your timing was terrible. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> um, it came out right before. <laughs> and then, and you know, in order to, in order to actually think, in order to have creative breakthroughs, in order for ideas to come together, you need quiet time. You need. A, to be able to quiet your mind. And you need to kind of work free of distraction because ideas take time to germinate. It's not like you're walking along and eureka happens. Eureka can only happen if you first had hours and hours of quiet contemplation. And as soon as your train of thought is broken up, you have to start all over. Mm. Um, And so I think that it really precludes a lot of deep thinking. But what I will say about that is that is not just a problem with open offices. That's also a problem with um, our obsession with multitasking and with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and having 20 tabs open at once. You can't have that deep deliberate practice if you're doing that either. That's like an open office on your computer. So you need to make sure to cultivate it. Internally, as well as in your external environment,
0: uh, your own working environment, uh, how do you like to you know get everything organized for yourself?
1: Well, I work from home as much as I can. I hate going into the office because you get interrupted and lots of things lots of things happen. I set aside time for social media because it's obviously you know for us it's important to do. It's kind of part of your. Of, of what you are, part of your brand, you know, part of your engagement with readers, part of the way you get ideas because you kind of see what's happening. Um, so I set aside time when I do that. And otherwise, my dirty little secret is I pre-schedule tweets, and I'm not actually mm-hmm. there <laughs> sending them out. Um, and otherwise, I have a program for my computer called Freedom which turns off my internet completely. Okay, so you um,
0: compartmentalize your internet time versus your writing yes, focus time.
1: When I am writing, um, now sometimes I can't because I actually need to be doing research, and so what I try to do then is to just not have any of those browser windows open. So you know, I don't have Twitter open, I don't have my email open. Um, I've learned that nobody has ever died. When I haven't responded to an email quickly, so that has yet to happen. Um, I'm waiting for the day that does happen, and then I won't be able to say that anymore. <laughs> okay. But so far, no lives have been lost.
0: You work in the quiet, or do you have music on?
1: Quiet. Okay. I even music can be a distraction, um, so I either work in the quiet. I can also work in cafes, and there's some actually some really interesting work that tells you why cafes are good because it's a kind of background buzzing noise and. Once you filter it out, you're actually in the zone because you've, Taking the energy to filter it out. The reason this doesn't work going back to open offices is they're talking about things that are relevant to you um, and there are conversations that are loud and you you can't filter that out, mm-hmm. especially because sometimes it's directed to you. In a cafe, they're talking about things you don't care about. Right. So it's actually, it is background noise.
0: I like cafes, except that every once in a while, like the blender starts running. Oh, that's Like it's, it's a very loud, <laughs> acute noise because I like, I like the general buzz too. Yeah. But when it's really loud, acutely no, heard noise, that. then it's a problem for me
1: it is a problem yes uh,
0: next topic the importance of sleep
1: hugely important and undervalued and I think one of the most important things is that you do not know how much sleep you need because after a few days of getting too little sleep people stop realizing that they're functioning at an impaired level. They think that they're at their optimal level still. They no longer see the difference. And so when you ask someone, do you get enough sleep? They'll be like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine. I I function perfectly on six hours of sleep. Chances are you don't because most people do not function perfectly on six hours of sleep. So if I were to put you in a sleep lab, you would sleep for 12 hours the first night. To make because, up for the deficit. Yep, yeah, exactly. And then you'd probably average out at between eight and nine hours. Which, oh, wow. is, which is much more it's than all of us usually get. Most people are asleep. chronically underslept. And we do a lot of things that impair our sleep. I did a whole series on this. Um, so modern, modern society is not very well equipped for sleep, and I think that that's making us much worse off. We should really be valuing it more. Um, and in that, if we did, we'd have much more productive people. Okay. And students.
0: This was not from the New Yorker. It was from an article on Aeon pornography (laughs) and whether it desensitizes people to like a more healthy sexual pleasure.
1: No, in fact, it might sensitize them more. It enhances it. It enhances sexual pleasure. And pornography addiction, as far as we know, um, is not real.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a reason I like this piece too. uh, And it's not just because it talks about porn. (laughs)
1: Uh, It seems
0: like this was a good example of how psychology done the right way. Can help to dispel received wisdom, wisdom that's passed down yep. through generations, yep. but that turns out to be totally wrong, even though it sounds like common sense?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, this, I got, I got a lot of pretty nasty pushback against this piece because people don't want to believe it's true. People really want to... It's a very moralistic high ground mm-hmm. that this cannot possibly be true because pornography is bad. <laughs> yeah, And so there's – it comes with a lot of judgment. And so when you give people the evidence, they say, oh, that can't be right. You know, you're cherry-picking your evidence. When if I had done the exact same piece with the opposite evidence, they say, yes, I told you so. Right. So, so you see that sort of confirmation bias. That happens all the time um, when people believe so strongly. In something, but it happens much more when it's perceived wisdom and when you feel like you have the moral high ground. And I really came at this with no preconceived notions. You know, I watched some of my first porn in researching this piece because I needed to know what I was dealing (laughs) with. Um, So I had no idea. um, And I really kind of looked at all the evidence. And it's interesting that here you have so much stuff coming together the sociology, epidemiology, psychology, and they're all pointing to the fact that pornography isn't actually doing anything bad.
0: Yeah. Uh, what was interesting in the piece, too, is that in the surveys that you cited, most people do think that, that it yeah. desensitizes you to sexual pleasure. I don't think it stops them from actually watching it, yeah. all right? But most people believe that it's problematic, yeah. um, and it's too bad because probably a lot of people might be looking at it and feeling guilty
1: That's exactly for right. exactly
0: that reason, and they shouldn't.
1: Right. And that's the problem. So the the big problem is the guilt. And the fact that people, you know, that social expectations are so against this Mm -hmm. that um, it actually does create psychological problems, which actually might lead to problems with sexual arousal that have nothing to do with the pornography, but everything to do with kind of being guilty about experiencing certain feelings. And guilt is a very powerful anti-aphrodisiac. What's the opposite of of (laughs) aphrodisiac?
0: (laughs) Next up, Donald Trump as con man. (laughs)
1: I have tried to be so careful about this. Given the preponderance of evidence we have, we have a good case for saying that Donald Trump exhibits all of the characteristics that one associates with a con artist.
0: (laughs) Which isn't a conclusive (laughs) argument. Uh, It's a suggestive one.
1: Yes, it's a suggestive argument. Now, if he loses this last lawsuit um, against Trump University, then we'll actually be able to say he's a con artist because he'll be... convicted fraud fraud fraudster okay but until then we can say that it certainly appears that he shares every single characteristic (laughs) that i enumerate in my con artist okay uh
0: which we will get to soon we got two more topics uh or massive open online courses
1: the evidence so far is not very pro-mooc um it shows that a lot of them need to change for there to actually be Um, for them to actually be a viable alternative to education. So there's something very good about having learning that's accessible everywhere. But when you look at the data, it ends up that the people who end up succeeding in MOOCs are the people who already have some educational background who don't actually really need them um, and who succeed in other environments as well. And the people who need them the most, the people who don't have access to other education, unless they're very self-motivated, self-driven, and very good at educating themselves, which does happen, they'll get lost. So, so far, I don't think MOOCs have figured out, you know, how do you actually serve the students who need you the most?
0: I guess I wonder if that's a problem of design. And by design, I just mean the architecture Mm -hmm. of how you find a MOOC and how you get the most usefulness out of Mm -hmm. it in addition to being a problem of just resources right you could be the type of person who would you know gain the most from it it might mean that you just don't have the money to go to a four year university or sure. something like that but that also works against you in terms of finding one of these courses.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the truth is that we like to think that everyone has access to all online resources. That's simply not true. There are big parts, even in the United States of the country, that don't have good internet access and that can't even have these resources. And then, of course, even if you do find them, um, what, at least for now, it seems that people learn better in person and people learn better when they have people around them that mm-hmm. they can talk um, about ideas with and who, they can learn from, and that you have a live professor. So there are actually there's compelling evidence that MOOCs might never be able to function on their own. Let me give you an example um, that's external to MOOCs: um, electronic textbooks, right? Textbooks on e-readers. Um, there was a big push toward them a decade or so ago, when people said, "Oh, this is the future. You know, everyone's going to want these textbooks." Textbooks are so expensive, right? didn't work because even children who've grown up with screens prefer physical books because it ends up you learn much better from a physical book than you do from a screen. And even people who've grown up with screens, so textbooks haven't gone anywhere and now the e-textbooks are um, on the wane. So sometimes, you know, education is something where we we know what works um, and some of these new things might work as well. They might work in tandem with some of the traditional stuff. We just need to test it and figure out what the optimal mix is. The truth is, we're not there yet, and um, I'm not sure if we'll be there in a few years or in ten years.
0: Right. This is one of those it's, things where maybe the optimism about technology yeah, sort of uh, got away from us. Exactly, sorted,
1: but... exactly. I think people say, oh, "Of course, this is going to work." That's kind of the the optimistic and I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm optimistic that it will work in some sort of form, but we need to figure out what that form is and whether it it will always need to be supplemented by some sort of in person. Yeah, which,
0: which reminds me of another thing: um, the idea that you learn better from a physical textbook versus an electronic yeah. textbook. I think there are also studies, or maybe it's just one study, showing that you remember things better when you write them down by pen rather than typing them out. Like there's something about the tactile experience that affects you somehow. So
1: I've actually written about this as well. Um, I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really fascinated by by this area. And yes, it turns out that your memory is much better um, when you take notes by hand than when you take them on a laptop. And there are two reasons. One is that physical memory. And the other is that most people write slower than they type. And so you're, you actually have to pay attention and process the information. You already have to figure out what's the gist of this, what's the important point. So you've already done that processing so that you can take the notes. When you type, you can be much more mindless about it. You don't actually have to process what the professor or the teacher is saying. You just write it down. Um, and so it just goes in one ear and out your fingers without actually stopping Uh, in the middle. Because when
0: you say physical memory, you mean the actual act of writing in the shape of the letters and the words and that kind of thing, that that implants itself a little bit better than just typing it up on a screen and maybe subliminally you think, well, I'll just come back to it so you forget it, it.
1: And you don't because you're not so you do have that physical memory of writing it out. And you also have the thinking, like the cognitive processing that has to happen. And it simply doesn't have to happen if you're typing because you don't have to wrestle with the ideas. You don't have to try to understand, you know, this is the important thing. That's not even to mention the fact that, you know, if you need to make some sort of visual diagram, you can do that really quickly if you're writing notes, but you can't do that on a computer very quickly. So if you're typing and all of a sudden there's something where you need to draw a picture to understand the information, you can't. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you're writing, it takes three seconds.
0: Last topic in the speed round, the marshmallow experiment and self-control.
1: So this is this is a loaded question because Walter Michelle was my graduate advisor. Okay, that's <laughs> um, right.
0: You've disclosed your uh, you've disclosed whatever yes, potential bias you need to disclose. Yes,
1: yes. So that's that's my bias. So I I did my dissertation. I worked with the Marshmallow students. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now in their forties. They're no longer children, and I will say that. It's an incredibly important finding. It's one of these things where, and for people who don't, I'm sure that everyone knows what the marshmallow study is, but for those who don't, um, it's basically if you're three or four years old and you get a marshmallow or anything, it doesn't have to be a marshmallow, in front of you and someone tells you, if you wait, you'll get two and I'll be out here and I'll be back. And if you can't wait, then ring this bell and you can eat it right now. And then you see how long These kids can wait, and it turns out that the minutes of waiting translate to all sorts of things um, throughout life. Higher SAT scores, um, higher educational attainment, better health, um, you're less likely to use drugs, all sorts of crazy outcomes are tied to your ability to wait at that age. And this has been replicated many, many times over. And I think that it's so effective because it's a situationally determined trait. So we're not actually just saying self-control in the abstract. We're saying self-control in a situation where it's incredibly difficult for you to exercise self-control. So you wouldn't give me a marshmallow. I hate marshmallows. You would give me something that I love. So you would find for every single person, you know, what is the thing that they can't resist? And that's what you put in front of them. When you're three years old, you know, it's really hard to wait. I mean, seven minutes for a three-year-old or a four-year-old is an eternity. It's not like an adult waiting for seven minutes. And I think the most interesting things of that from that study are not how long you wait, but What is it about those kids that enables them to wait? And so you look at their strategies. You know, some sing songs to themselves. They tell stories. They distract themselves. They pretend that the marshmallow isn't really a marshmallow. They do all sorts of crazy things. And you can teach people those strategies to help them have better self-control. It's gonna be a a
0: fun uh, experiment to watch too, as the kids start dancing around the room or something. Oh, (laughs) it's amazing!
1: I love those videos. There's one my favorite, and this kid failed the test. This was with Oreo cookies, Um, and there were Oreo there was an Oreo cookie in front of him too, Um, and he. Had to wait so that he could have both. Um, And he waits for a little bit and then he kind of looks around, makes sure that no one's there, obviously doesn't realize he's being filmed, opens the cookies. And eats out all the cream, and then puts them back, and sits <laughs> like this, <laughs> as if he's never, Very as if clever, he's never done anything right? wrong. So he obviously failed. But that kid's that kid's going places.
0: <laughs> That's <great. laughs> he might become
1: a con artist. <laughs> he might. He
0: might. Uh, and that is, in fact, the perfect place to transition into discussing uh, the confidence game. Why we fall for it every time. I hope you're not too run down from discussing this book. It's been all over the place. It looks like. It had to be a lot of fun to write. It certainly was a lot of fun to read. You note in the acknowledgments that you were partly inspired to write it because of David Mamet's uh, House of Cards, great movie. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorites is The Sting uh, with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. There's something beguiling, something seductive about watching someone sort of pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. What do you think it is?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the answer stems from what we call them confidence artists, Right, there's an artistry to this. It's not when you look at a criminal, you know, they, you know, if someone holds you up, of course you're going to give them your wallet. But a con artist talks you into handing you their wallet and saying, "Please take it," you know, in a metaphorical sense. And so they they convince you to do things, they make you complicit. That doesn't mean that the victim is to blame. Being complicit in this sense is very different. You're convinced that you're acting out of your own self-interest. So there's there's a, I mean, they're craftsmen. And it's really, it's terrifying, but it's also beautiful to watch because you see them convincing people of all sorts of things. They're, they're like magicians. Why do we love to go into a magic show um, and be fooled? So con artists are doing the same thing. And obviously it's not as innocent as in a magic show, but it's still just as interesting to watch it unfold, especially when you're not the one who's uh, who's being taken advantage of. Right.
0: I guess uh, it seems like in these movies, at least, there are these subterranean layers of psychological processes yeah. where all these weird things are happening. And partly, it's probably interesting because we don't understand exactly how it is that the person got conned. Right. right? In that sense, I I read your book as a kind of sympathetic portrait of people who get conned. That would have been a way worse title, (laughs) Um, but it seems to be one of the themes that holds everything together. And it turns out that the people who get conned are all of us.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm so glad you read it that way, because that's how I wrote it. I mean, ultimately, I wrote it for the victims. You know, I wanted to give people permission to come forward and to say I've been conned, and to realize that it's okay. Because the way that we see victims, so as much as we glamorize con artists, we do the opposite with victims, we blame them. We say, you know, how could you be so stupid? You know, you yeah, can't, you're a dope. How yeah, could you fall exactly, for that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How could anyone fall for that? You can't fool an honest man. Are you dishonest? Are you greedy? We have all of these victim-blaming um, tactics because I think we want to believe that it could never happen to us, um, and we want to distance ourselves from those people, and we want to point to a flaw because then we can say, well, I'm not greedy, so I can't be conned. I'm not stupid, so I can't be conned. It's a way out for us. When in fact, you get really smart people, really honest people, in fact, the more honest you are in some ways, the easier you are to con people who don't have a greedy bone in their body, you know, and they, and they, are, they can be victims because that's not what cons are about. Too many people think that this is all about money. When it's really not, a lot of con artists make no money whatsoever from their cons. And a lot of them would have been much more successful in more legitimate professions. Um, And so I think for them, it's not about the cash. It's about power. And it's about kind of that rush of power over other people. A
0: specific kind of power over other people, though. The ability to manipulate emotions.
1: Exactly. And the ability not just to manipulate emotions, but to uh, manipulate their world. You create a world and they inhabit it. They think that it's the true world. So you actually get them to believe whatever you want them to believe. And that's I mean, you're kind of playing God, right? You're creating a little universe.
0: You're a bit of a magician. Exactly. A
1: you are a magician. You're, you're a Prospero. Ab- you you absolutely are. And I think that um you know, the important thing about the greatest magicians is they're not the people who are the best sleight of hand artists. They're the people who tell the best stories and manipulate your attention because they You know, that's what it's all about. It's about making you pay attention to what they want you to pay attention to so that you ignore the things you're not supposed to be paying attention to.
0: Sure. To get into some more specifics, Mm -hmm. because I want to stay on the idea um, of getting conned and Mm -hmm. the sort of diversity of people who get conned. Although it's true that anybody can be conned, it's also true that certain types of people are more susceptible to certain kinds of cons. Let's like run through a few examples. Uh, So sad people versus happy people
1: yeah so so if you're sad uh, you are much more likely to take some risks when it comes to certain types of decisions, because your chances are, if you're sad, something has happened and you're not, you know, you you want to recalibrate, you want to kind of get out of that position. So you want to, you don't like the status quo, you want to change. So you are more likely to do things to change. And so you end up being susceptible to often to financial cons and to some financial frauds because you say, oh, I'll gamble. Sure. I'll I'll do that. Spontaneous risks. Yep, exactly. Impulsive risks. It makes you more – so being more of a risk taker um, is something that makes you susceptible to cons, but certain emotional states make all of us Mm -hmm. more willing to take take risks like being sad.
0: Yeah. You you give some examples in the book of people who are – to all appearances, to their families, mm-hmm. to their coworkers, people who really have it together. Yep. But it just takes one really bad break, you know, a, a death in the family, yep. a bad breakup, and all of a sudden, there's somebody who ends up walking into a fortune teller's office and they get swindled.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where people think that it doesn't apply to them because it's not the kind of person I am. But this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of the circumstances versus the person. Circumstances can change. And in the right circumstances, anyone can be susceptible because you can have you know, those huge life changes make you very emotionally vulnerable. And con artists, I mean, that's their food is emotional vulnerability. They eat it up and they take advantage of it. And so, you know, some of the people that I chose specifically for their kind of intelligence who fell for con artists. If you look at them, I mean, you have a woman who was working for Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have, you know, these are people who are smart people. I mean, she makes investment decisions. She is not someone who should be giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to a psychic who's going to reverse a curse on her past life. I mean, I say it right now and it just sounds ludicrous. Right. Happy people. (laughs) Happy people are also... Vulnerable to specific types of cons. So, if you want someone to win a lottery, okay, <laughs> happy happy people are a great target because they are very optimistic, right? So everything's you, going great; it'll every, keep going great. So you want to you want to kind of buy into that optimism bias, um, and happy people are also more vulnerable to basically any sort of approach that tells them how great they are and how great they will keep doing mm-hmm. in the future. Um, so great investment opportunity for you, you know, want some land in Florida, it, you'll get some great returns on it. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm that kind of person. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to do that. So that's not, it's doesn't seem like a risk, right? It seems like a safe, sure thing, but it might not be something that you would do under other circumstances. And so that's one of the things when I say happy, sad, it's, Not that you're this is your
0: Your eternal yeah eternal disposition.
1: It's just that something something has
0: made you really happy. Exactly, made you really sad.
1: Exactly that there's been a life change. So this is kind of a bump. Yeah, you're not not at your baseline.
0: You 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 write in the book the story of a friend of yours who I think in the 1980s was in college and went to visit (laughs) uh, Manhattan for the first time with a friend. She only had like. 40 bucks. Back then, 40 bucks was a little more than 40 bucks now, but still not a ton of money. 40 bucks to make it through like a weekend or something. And she saw one of those guys uh, doing, uh, you know, I have three cards, like pick which card, you know, I'm I'm holding or whatever. Uh, And he let her win the first time. And that's when he got her.
1: Yep, absolutely. Three Card Monty gets you every time. And people people think, and by the way, this woman went on to get a PhD in sociology. Once again, not a stupid Smart person. Yeah. And she just, you know, you, you get caught up in that euphoria and everyone is cheering you on. There's this whole environment and you don't realize that everyone's out to get you. Mm-hmm. I mean, Three Card Monty is a gang. It's a group of people. They have shills who are winning. They have people who are, telling you how to beat it. And the one thing that really, so she didn't, she didn't know what three card Monty was. Um, but the one thing that gets me is that people who do know exactly what it is still play because they think they know it and they can beat the con artist. Elementary mistake. Never think that you can out con a con artist. You cannot do it, but they think that they'll be able to figure out where the trick is. What they don't realize is that then there's another trick, you know, you, you will never figure it out. You will never win, but that enticement of maybe I will win and I'll pull one over on them. It's so strong yeah. that people who should really know better still play. today. To this day, you have three-card Monty. Even though I'm far from the first person to write about this, this is one of the most widely known cons mm-hmm. in the U.S. Uh,
0: about a third of the way into the book, you introduced the topic of storytelling and its importance to the con. Uh, we tend to process the world more through stories mm-hmm. than through, I guess, uh, cold logic. We impose stories where there aren't any. Mm -hmm. How important is that to the process of conning someone and getting conned?
1: Crucial. Crucial. I mean, con artists at the end of the day are storytellers. I mean, that is what they do. And the ability to kind of craft a good narrative is essential to the ability to con someone into going along with you because what ends up happening is that stories make you emotional. Um, so that this is your ability to manipulate emotion. As soon as you are immersed in a story, your kind of your critical thinking cap is off a little bit because you're just following along. Um, and so it's not like you're trying to pick apart the argument. In fact, um there are some studies that I write about where people didn't see red flags when they were reading an emotionally compelling stories so that they saw when those same stories were presented in kind of a newspaper y type of so account the, like
0: unknowingly filtering out items that would screw with the story exactly, itself exactly
1: exactly and con artists know this and so they they often you know they give you just enough detail but not too much detail mm-hmm. because your mind fills in all of the blanks you and you kind of you Create the story with them. Um, so they right away, you know, they feed you a little, they see how you're reacting, and then they figure out where that story is going to go next. So they craft the narrative just for you. And then you become part of it, and then you're already invested in it. And so not only did you filter out stuff before the fact, you're going to now rationalize away things after the fact. So you'll say, oh, that's not a red flag. No, 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 this just means he's more honest because. I wouldn't have lost any money. He would have made sure that I kept winning um, if he were a true con artist. See, he's on my side. Um, Yeah, and
0: it's amazing, too, because even after the con is revealed, people persist in believing it. Like, they really have trouble letting go after they've lost all their money.
1: It's crazy. I, I mean, some of the stories that I write about, some of the cons I write about, You have people on trial, con artists on trial, and their legal expenses are paid for by their victims. Because to the end, the victims think that this is just a, this is a farce. It's a conspiracy. And this person is really innocent. And this happens with, you know, this is not just a one-time thing. This happens over and over because... Once you believe, it's really difficult to admit that you were wrong, that you were taken in.
0: you were wrong all along. It's
1: much easier to say, no, 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 I wasn't wrong. Um, This person isn't a con artist. I mean, there were people, you know, with Bernie Madoff. Especially
0: when the the story itself was so compelling.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what I was about to say is, you know, Bernie Madoff's victims, there were red flags and people kind of called him out along the way, but nobody nobody believed them. And it's not because they were being greedy. It's because they had already invested so much that they really believed in him. Yeah, And they they would point at evidence. And this was brilliant of him. Look, he doesn't take money from everyone. This person can't get in with him. If you were just a Ponzi schemer, he'd take... Money from everyone. He'd do this. He'd do that. So the
0: illusion of exclusivity. It's interesting that that works for almost anything, right? So people want to go to a club where there's people out the door. Well, I don't, but you know, it's like, but in general, like they do this stuff on purpose, where if it looks like only select few people can get into something.
1: It makes you want it.
0: It makes it seem legitimate, too.
1: Oh, it does make it seem legitimate. Um, And people want to associate with those types of people. You can think about throughout history how many imposters there were that weren't just any imposter, but imposters to aristocracy. Or um, I read about the daughter of Andrew Carnegie. Or we have the Rockefeller, (laughs) you know. Right. Um, People who you want to associate with. You want to be their friend. You want to believe them. I mean – You know, I want Andrew Carnegie's daughter as my best friend. Sure, why not? Of course I'll lend her money.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about the con artists themselves. You write about the dark triad of traits. One is nonchalance. Uh, I hadn't heard it referred to this way before, actually. Um, The more conventional term, I guess, is psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Psychopathy. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. Psychopathy. Uh, Psychopathy. That's one another is narcissism, and then a third is Machiavellianism. But you write also that although those traits might be more prevalent in con artists than in people in other professions, normal professions, legitimate professions, um, not all con artists necessarily have all three.
1: Yes. um, I think especially psychopathy um, is is more rare than one would think, simply because it's pretty rare in the population. And I think all con artists need to have Machiavellianism uh-huh. because Machiavellianism is the ability to manipulate people without their realizing that they're being manipulated. So you get them to do what's in your best interest. All the while, they think it's their own idea uh-huh. and that they're doing what's in their best interest. And that's the essence of how a con artist operates. So I think we can safely say that they're all Machiavellian. Okay. Um, and many of them are narcissistic because and it's an incredibly narcissistic thing it requires a lot of moxie to pull these off sometimes um psychopathy not all of them are just evil people who have no empathy that's not true um some of them are for sure but that is that is more of a toss-up um and you have plenty of female con artists and you have hardly any female psychopaths so that's that's kind of one point where you can see that 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 really diverges. And the other thing that I will say is that you can be, you know, you can be a Machiavellian, you can be a narcissist, you can even be a psychopath and not become a con artist. So it really is predisposition plus opportunity. So you have to be in the right circumstances for that to come out. I don't think anyone is, you know, fated to become a con artist.
0: Sure. In terms of cognitive biases that make people, probably all people susceptible to uh, cons, one is optimism bias. Another is a kind of belief that we're more awesome than we really are, yeah. right, and therefore could never fall for one of these things. Can you just sort of take us through what sure. some of these sort of inherent traits that we all have are yeah. that make us more vulnerable?
1: Yeah. So this this thing that you're talking about has many names, uh, exceptionalism bias, okay. <laughs> um, superiority bias, the Lake Wobegon effect. Um, for the mythical town of Lake Wobegon, where everyone is above average. Um, I would have gone with like
0: awesomeness <laughs> self-belief, but nobody puts me in charge of naming anything. <laughs> All right. So
1: awesomeness self-belief. <laughs> um, basically, we think that on anything good, we're either above average or well above average. And on anything bad, we're either below average or well below average. And it's really difficult to convince us otherwise. So one example of a study that was done in a hospital after people got into car accidents and two-thirds of the people had caused the accident and were in a hospital, so clearly serious accidents. And the researchers asked them a very simple question, what kind of a driver are you? You know, below average, average, above average. They all said they were above average, even though they had just been in an accident that they caused because, of course... Nobody wanted to self-assess again. Exactly, exactly. And it happens on everything. So if you have someone from the outside evaluate you and rank you on all sorts of qualities, your self-rankings are going to be much higher. And then this is one of my favorite findings. There's this guy at Stanford who does all of these studies um, and he loves to work with his own students who always think that they're going to be in the top quarter of his class, by the way, um, with I think over half of them thinking they're going to be in the top 10% of grades. (laughs) And um, so he teaches them about this bias. And so he has them do a self-assessment. Then they have a lesson on this exceptionalism bias. Then he says, do you want to redo your assessment? And he has them do it a second time. And they change their answers even more in the direction that they had them, because they think, okay, I understand this, other people have it, but I've already accounted for it, I don't have it. So even with this, in terms of this exceptionalism bias, they think that they're below average (laughs) in their susceptibility, which is kind of brilliant, right?
0: Great, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Let's talk about a couple of specific con artists, right? The one that I think you uh, refer to the most often in the book is Fred Demara, Demara, This was incredible, and maybe his best con was the long-term con on his own biographer. How did that work?
1: That is, yeah, that is quite the story. So Bob Crichton wrote this book, The Great Imposter, which became a movie starring Mm -hmm. Tony Curtis, and... So he Demara is one of the greatest imposters I think, of the 20th century, operated over decades, was very well known, was on the cover of Time magazine, appeared on Groucho Marx's show. This still did not stop him from being able to perpetrate him. Yeah, exactly. So even, through the 80s, I mean, this guy died in the 80s. He was still an impostor to the end. But he was a doctor. Yeah. He was
0: a lawyer. He was what? Well, what was he? A surgeon. <laughs> a surgeon. He founded
1: right. a religious college in Maine. He was a professor. He almost got a contract to build a bridge in Mexico. So <laughs> he was a civil engineer. I mean, this guy was brilliant. prison warden in Texas. Um, so this guy was pretty brilliant. And so Crichton spends so much time with him, ends up Believing that this guy's a really good guy who's just gotten bad breaks, writes this pretty amazing book about him. And I'm not just saying amazing in terms of, you know, the writing. And it is a great book, but also it makes Demara into kind of a hero. It it says that he, a flattering. It's portrait a very flattering portrait, and he has all of this evidence to the contrary, and he cho- he chooses just to ignore it. And so what ends up happening is the book comes out. Demara steals Crichton's identity. becomes Crichton for a while. Crichton forgives him. DeMar sues him two lawsuits that he didn't get enough money, even though he's already gotten more than enough. Crichton forgives him. Demara keeps asking him for money. Crichton gives him loan after loan after loan. He buys him a car. He pays for a religious education so that he could really be a monk. He really he loves to he loves to be a monk. That's one of his favorite disguises. Yeah, so that he can really be a religious leader. Um so he keeps doing all of this stuff. Damara keeps not just not living up to expectations, but just ruining it all and doing terrible things. And Crichton keeps writing him, you know, letters of glowing letters of recommendation and really believing in him. Um, he almost had him deliver his wife's kid because Demara convinced him that he was going to be a much better doctor than than yeah. than, um, than his wife's OBGYN. Luckily, that didn't work. But this guy is just he gets under your skin. And I, I saw that too, when I was doing research, when you meet con artists, a lot of them are so charismatic that you actually, you want to stop any association with them because they get to you and you start being on their side. And so, so basically for his whole life, DeMara had this very prominent writer in his corner defending him against all wrongdoing.
0: Yeah. I I try to imagine myself as a journalist, if I've dedicated myself to a certain topic, you know. Imagine coming to the end of your career or even being at the midway point of your career and having to admit that everything that's come before was dead wrong. Yeah. How hard would it be to convince myself that I'd been wrong the whole time? It would be – I mean, I would be – I would have such a stake in defending myself. Of course.
1: Of course. And I think the more that Crichton invested in Damara, the more the stake grew right. and the more difficult it was to admit that he was wrong. Yeah. Um, and I can't blame him. Mm-hmm. I can't blame him at all. I don't think it makes him a bad journalist. I mean, I think it's a very natural tendency to yeah. to defend that.
0: Uh, in the book, there's also the very sad story of Paul Frampton, a 68-year-old academic, or 68 years old at the time of the mm-hmm. of the con, yeah. I believe, who thought that he was having an email romance with a 30, 32-year-old Czech supermodel, which sounds ridiculous, but he was completely... Into it partly because I think the awesomeness self belief bias oh, kicked in. He thought he thought that you know, of course, if, of course, a thirty two year old gorgeous Czech model would want to date Miss him. Miss Bikini World, you know. former Miss Bikini. Oh, was World. she Miss Bikini World? Okay, <laughs> but he ended up running drugs for her through Argentina, where he got busted, and even then. He thought that she had been set up, too. Yep.
1: yep. He thought that they were both set up, that she was the love of his life, his future wife, and that she must have been, you know, that some evil boyfriend must have been jealous of their romance and so planted drugs on him so that they would be broken up forever. And this is what he's saying in prison after it's clear that Denise Milani doesn't exist. I mean, she does exist. She just was not the person he was, uh, he was having a relationship with. And, you know, talk about not stupid. I mean, this guy is a physicist, tenured professor, you know, brilliant guy in one respect. And yet, someone who just cannot admit that this could possibly be a ruse and who's so taken in by her, that he he's positive that he is, running an errand for his future wife and so even when you have something that's not just a red flag i mean it's like i don't know like a scarlet wall yeah. that's you're given a suitcase to, to carry i mean how many times do you hear have you you know is any of your luggage has it been right. out of your sight you know has anyone else given you something yeah you he should know better And yet he doesn't. He just puts his dirty laundry in it and and continues on.
0: There there was something almost unbearably sad about that story, which is that this guy got to the point where he was so myopic about, again, the story that he was telling himself, that that he'd finally met the love of his life, everything was going to be great, that even after being on trial in Argentina— yeah, He still couldn't quite bring himself to admit what had yeah. happened.
1: Yeah. And can you imagine, you know, being almost 70 years years old and being in prison in yeah. Argentina? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a happy place to be. And he would still, it's very funny because he, he could see it very clearly about other prisoners. He said things like, oh, they all think they're innocent but I, they're not not—they're not innocent. I'm yeah. the only innocent one yeah. here. So he can see that they are all...
0: Even though he had a suitcase full of cocaine.
1: <laughs> right, exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> I, I want to close by uh, talking about three kind of central tensions in the book that you uh, you didn't come back to explicitly all the time, but they seem to be kind of undercurrents mm-hmm. in the book. The first is the idea that to live a good life, a pleasant life, you have to have a certain amount of trust in people. Yep. You should be optimistic about some things. And yet those are also the very things that make you susceptible or convenient uh, for a con artist to prey on.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, when I finished writing this book, I wanted to just lock myself in a room. I thought, you know, (laughs) people suck. I'm not going to do anything. Then you realize that if you have that attitude, that's a very impoverished life you know, it's like Scrooge sort of, you know, you have no true friendships. You can't form any new relationships or new connections. You're not emotionally open to any new experiences because you just think that every everything is bad. Um, and that hopefulness and that trust is what enables you to kind of forge the bonds that are going to be the most important part of your life mm-hmm. in many respects. And honestly, the trade-off is worth it. If yeah. it means that one of those will end up screwing me over, so be it. Sure. You know, At least it makes my life much richer and worth living. I mean, I don't want to live a long life of not getting fooled if I'm living it completely isolated. Right,
0: completely cynically. So the, the second and kind of related question is about the tactics that con artists employ, right? A lot of them are tactics that in a more benign setting, we all use in our relationships, you know, uh, tactics of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And I guess here's what's hard about it, at least for me, in terms of how to think about it. You know, there's a certain amount of persuasion happening all the time, right? There's a certain uh, the word manipulation kind of mm-hmm. has connotations that are very powerful, so I don't want to label it that. But you know, in your personal life with your friends, you want them to like you. Sure. Sometimes you're going to lie to say something nice because you don't want to hurt their feelings. If it's a romantic partner or somebody that you want to be a romantic partner, you're going to put your best foot forward. You're going to bury Some of the uglier things, even though those are things that eventually he or she will be exposed to anyways, right? And that's okay. That's
1: just sort of a normal
0: thing. And so when we talk about con artists, we're talking about them exploiting our cognitive biases in order to get what they want. But at work or in our personal lives, Aren't we also constantly exploiting other people's cognitive biases by being charismatic or persuasive or telling clear and simple stories when nuance is called for? We're all doing it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, We all – so the same exact tactics can be used for good or for evil, basically. Um, And, yes, we are all – minor con artists in our lives. And I think we have to, I mean, it's what makes society work well, makes life much more pleasant to be, to be perfectly honest. And so to me, um, the dividing line is, is your intention malicious or not? So if, if it's, you know, if it's not, if you're actually just doing this for pretty benign ends for, for, for reasons that aren't to take advantage of other people, then you're not a con artist. And yeah, sure, you're using some con-like tactics, but that doesn't make you a con artist. It's only when that in, that malicious, I'm going to take it. intentionality. Yeah, it's intentionality to take advantage of other people for your own ends. Then it becomes a con. And you have con artists in all legitimate professions too. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's a profession con artist. You know, there are con artists who are also lawyers, con yeah. artists who are also businessmen.
0: There, there is also sometimes a very fine line between a con and a more legitimate attempt to capitalize yes. on people's propensity for optimism in order to introduce something new yeah uh, you in the book <laughs> you bring up the example of uh John law who essentially came up with the idea of fiat money in yeah. the 1700s uh, maybe a more recent example a more contemporary example would be like in Silicon Valley where people where it's sort of expected people are expected to quote, fake it till yeah. you make it. Yeah. And sometimes they make it.
1: Yeah. you know. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important point. Um, and we don't know off, often, you know, is it, was it over optimism? Have you been swept up in this Silicon Valley mentality? So let's, let's use a very modern example, Theranos. You know, we don't know, you know, we still don't know if it's a con. The evidence doesn't look good, but who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe in six months they'll release data that show that this actually works. What we do know is they certainly got ahead of themselves. I mean, they just had to invalidate results from two years of testing. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, if you, I'd
0: be surprised if yeah. in six months we got harder. I know. I'm just, but I'm I know just, what you mean. I know what you mean. Sure. You know, we don't know uh-huh. for sure. Yeah.
1: But so we don't know, was Holmes deliberately trying to con or did she just get over optimistic Maybe she and, legitimately and was she legitimately got wrapped up in exactly, it exactly sure. exactly we don't know yeah. um so it really is a thin line and until we get into her head and right now i'm sure that no matter what her initial intention is she's retrenched and she's going to yeah she's going to support her position sure. until the end
0: sure and even even let's you know set aside theranos yeah. for a second i mean there are companies there that do this for a reason. And there's actually a legitimate incentive for doing it, which is the more people you get to buy into your idea, even if you aren't quite as hopeful as you're portraying yourself to be, it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: The final chapter in your book is really quite lovely. Thank you. Um, It's about religious cons, essentially, cults. And there's something kind of both tragic and also beautiful about these kinds of cons How do I I explain this? The idea that you can impose meaning in the world is is fascinating and it's tragic in the sense that if we actually were to look at the world in a very cold, honest way, we might see the meaninglessness everywhere and that would suck. And it's beautiful in the sense that we have this weird inherent capacity to see things as better than they are and maybe we shouldn't just abandon that. Do you find in your own life now that you've written this book that you try to selectively apply when you have this kind of storytelling narrative versus uh, when you try to assess something really honestly?
1: Um, I try. I try. It's hard. I mean, it's it's easy to think that, that, that I will take control of this, but the storytelling narrative is so powerful that sometimes you fall for it without quite realizing. But I definitely try, especially in very important decisions, in things that matter, you know, you have to try to ask the hard questions, mm-hmm. especially when you really want to believe in something. The more you want to believe, the more you have to push back. Um, and not ad infinitum. I mean, it's not it's not something where you just keep pushing back forever. At some point you say, "Okay, I'll I'll go along with this." But I do I do try to strike a balance and I do think that there's, you know, there is beauty in it and there's room for it. I mean, we all need beliefs. It's a really stark existence and not a very fulfilling one without them. Um I'm not saying we all need to be religious. I'm not religious, but I think it's good to have the capacity to believe in something because it also gives you the capacity for curiosity for awe for wonder for all sorts of kind of beautiful feelings from which great ideas can originate
0: so in that sense then aren't con artists doing us a favor as well if they're exposing us to the idea that we have this propensity this ability to impose meaning where it might not necessarily exist.
1: Well, I don't think that they're doing us a favor, but I think that their existence shows something great about humanity.
0: That's exactly what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) Maria Konnikova has been our guest. The book is The Confidence Game, why we fall for it every time. People can find your work at The New Yorker and a few other places too, uh, at least in the archives. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for coming in. This was great.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time.
0: And that's the end of our chat with Maria Conacoba. We hope you enjoyed it. You can give us feedback by calling us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number for our listeners abroad. Country code is plus one. You can also email us at alphachatterbox at ft.com. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Rank the show. Leave a review on iTunes. It really does help other people find us. And, of course, this episode is produced and edited by the mighty Amy Keene. Thanks, Amy, for everything, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again in a few weeks for another episode of Alpha Chatterbox.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.